This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. We're talking about world religions, and the one thing I want you to take away is it matters. It matters what you believe, and it matters across every stage of your life. And so if you're in J-seekers, it matters what we teach those young hearts and those young minds. Uh, Just as it matters on a Wednesday night what we teach and what those middle schoolers believe. It matters when you're in your living room with your small group studying God and what Jesus means to you. It matters. And hopefully by now you've picked up that when we're studying these other world religions, we don't all believe the same thing. I mean, in fact, I think it's very obvious as we've taken the time to look at what Hindus believe and Muslims, and then last week we look at the Mormon faith, and you can see we have very different beliefs about God and Jesus and salvation, and this puts us at a crossroads. As I've said throughout this series, I think it is unavoidable in the modern world to go through life without some intersection of someone who believes probably very differently than you about faith. And my hope in this series is to give you an opportunity to have some confidence that you could engage with people who believe differently from you. You may not remember every fact or everything from these sermons, but, but my hope is that you would have some confidence in what you believe about your Christian faith. I, I got to thank you. I've enjoyed teaching through this series, and I've enjoyed your questions. You've You've hit me with some hard ones. In fact, I find that during the week I'm spending a great amount of time preparing these messages because much of this is kind of like relearning for me a lot of the faith backgrounds. And it's also digging into your questions. You've asked some really good questions. Several of the questions kind of had this sense of sort of like, how do I know for sure, Pastor? Um, Questions would be asked like, how do I know that the God you teach and the Jesus I'm trying to believe in is real. And if you find yourself with that question, you're, you're not alone. In fact, that question, is God real, is one of the most universal questions. In fact, um, great apologist by the name of Lee Strobel. In fact, if you've never read his book, The Case for Christ, I, I would highly recommend it. It's an excellent book. He actually has done some analytics on this question, and he found that on Google, this question, is God real, is asked 200 times every second, all around the world. There are people that are hungry for this answer. Is God real? And my question to you this morning is, well, how would you answer that? If someone came up to you and said, hey, is God real? How how would you answer that? And some of you this morning, you might be saying, well, pastor, isn't that your job? You know, aren't you the one that makes God real to me? And that's actually not my job. My, My job is to give you an opportunity to encounter and to experience God. But, but God's not into using guilt or any type of means to do that. He wants you to have a personal encounter with Jesus so that you can have this evidence to share with the world. In fact, we do have evidence that God is real. In fact, I think as Christians, we have by far the greatest evidence to share. Do you know what that evidence is? Do you know what the evidence that God is real is? I'll give you a hint. You're in church. The answer to every question in church is Jesus. We have the evidence of God being real in the life of Jesus. And this is what sets us apart as Christians and is what brings us to the religion that I want to study today. We believe that Jesus 
is God's son sent to be our savior as the Messiah, the savior for the entire world. And the religion we're going to study believes that that is not true. And that religion is Judaism. In fact, if you could just put it simply, as Christians, we base our entire testimony on Jesus, that he lived, that he taught, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he is God's son sent to be the Messiah. And Judaism is still waiting. They're waiting for a savior. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. And I've had a lot of questions just throughout this series and conversations with people about Judaism because it has a lot of similarities to Christianity. And so many of you have asked, well, what do the Jewish faith, people of the Jewish faith believe and how do they practice their faith? So I thought we would just spend some time this morning digging in. And I want to tell you that this religion is very different. In fact, um, I find myself approaching Judaism with, with just this utmost of respect to the tradition and to the faith practices. It is a beautiful faith. In fact, I believe there's a lot that we can actually learn from all the way up to the point of Jesus. That's where they stop short. And I think that really kind of raises the question that I've had in the church. Sometimes people will say, well, all these religions, are you just kind of saying that every other religion is a cult? And so I think it's good to start there. What is the difference between a cult and a religion. Now, there is a clear line of distinction. A cult, and you've seen this throughout the series, is more about a person than a set of beliefs. A cult is oftentimes um, a person who is a very charismatic leader, who has been given kind of a special, or we would call secret revelation about God, and the point of the cult is to follow that leader. So we've looked at some cults in this series. We've looked at uh, Mormonism. They have the cult leader of Joseph Smith. Next week, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientology, also both cults. Um, you could put that in the same camp as, you know, things that you've seen throughout history, charismatic leaders, people like Charles Manson, kind of all fit in this idea of cults. The difference is, with a religion, it's an indoctrination into a set of beliefs about a supernatural God. That's kind of the big, clear line of distinction. And that's where, in the line of religion, Christianity and Islam and Judaism would fall. Judaism is the fifth largest religion that is endeared and embraced by many around the world. So let's kind of dive into the Jewish faith in context. And I think what's helpful when you approach Judaism is to understand that these intersections with the Christian faith is really because of the sacred text. Um, they're going to have more sacred text, but they trace their lineage back through the Bible. And the Bible, for the Christian, is the only sacred text that we have. We believe everything of truth about God comes from the Bible. And so, therefore, the Bible is something that we cherish and we uphold. In fact, it is an incredible book. Every week, I would like to encourage you to read it. Read it all the way from beginning to end. It may be a little foreign in some places, but it is God's truth. It's a beautiful book. In fact, this message this morning isn't so much about proving the inerrancy of the Bible, but you just have to know that the Bible is trustworthy. In fact, you could look at it through the lens of what we call textual criticism, and it stands the test of time. In fact, of all the ancient documents, it is more easily proven. It has 25,000 uh, original manuscripts that have been pieced together, uh, comprising this canon of the Bible. It's 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Again, it stands the test when you compare it 
to any Jewish book or even any writing in ancient history. Now, Judaism, they actually have their version of what we call the Bible, but it's really kind of used in sort of three major formats. They first of all have the Torah, and the Torah is actually the law that's contained in the first five books of the Bible. This is where things get a little confusing. But the Torah comes from the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, straight out of what we would consider the Old Testament Bible. And the Torah is the law. There are some 613 laws in Torah, and a good Jew would learn these laws and then keep them while they're waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, to come. They also have the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is also a part of our Old Testament Bible. It would be all of the prophets. But they read the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They read them differently than us. They read them as if they are their historical documents of their people, which they are. The Israelites, or the Jews today, are God's people covered under the Abrahamic covenant. And they, again, believe that someday a Savior would arrive and deliver the people. The people have been uh, subject to slavery all the way back to the time of Moses, and they feel as though even to this day they're oppressed, and they're waiting for the prophecies to be fulfilled. It's the last writing that I find the most interesting. Uh, it's the Talmud. And the Talmud is sort of their, their interpretation of all of the Torah law by the way of their teachers. A teacher in Jewish tradition is known as a rabbi. And the rabbis would all have their own take and interpretation on all of those 613 laws. Can you imagine how confusing that would get? Every rabbi has kind of their own take on each of the 613 laws. They wouldn't label it this way, but you could imagine that a rabbi is going to see something different depending on their own beliefs. You could say that there are sort of conservative rabbis, they wouldn't use this term, and there would be more liberal rabbis in the way they interpreted the Torah. And you became a student of that rabbi, and you therefore embraced that rabbi's interpretation. Well, it sounds simple enough until you come to texts that are, well, debatable. And we have them today, sort of hot-button, hot-topic issues. There are a lot of the same issues that they debated and had as hot topics back then. And so I thought we would just take one of them this morning. And just to kind of show you how the rabbis would interpret the law. So let's just, for illustrative purposes, take the topic of divorce, kind of a, a very polarizing topic today, and let's look at it through the lens of how the Talmud, or rabbi, uh, would interpret it. Now, this is straight out of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is the writing of Moses in the law to the people. And he says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, of course, this is a, a, very, a very polarizing statement. I'm not giving a lot of context behind it. But if we just kind of take this, this one word, indecent, it seems like a man has a lot of power to divorce a woman for any reason that is indecency. Well, how do you define that? What is indecency? Well, let's play a little, let's play a little game show, could we? Let's play a little, a, little, a little game show called Ask the Rabbi, right? This is how um, the rabbis would answer it. And I want you to see how different these responses are. So you could take, 
three historical rabbis, and you would get three very different answers to the word, what is indecency, and therefore the grounds for divorce. Rabbi Shema would say, well, indecency is only because he found the ground for it in unchastity, meaning in adultery, in something unchaste in the marriage, in the relationship. Um, that would kind of put Rabbi Shema in line with kind of the historical interpretation of Jesus. But you can see that this is where things kind of go crazy, because it really has to do with the rabbi. So take Rabbi Hillel for a moment. He considers indecency to be even if she spoiled his dish. I had a, an incredible seminary teacher, uh, we dug into this, and he said that the context here is actually around like breakfast time. And he said that the rabbi would actually say you could divorce your wife if she burned your eggs, right? Like, what on earth, right? Like, this is just crazy. And then even further down the line, Rabbi, rabbi Akaba indecency is defined as even if he found someone prettier. So you can see that there is just massive differences in what the rabbis would interpret. Now, if you recall in the New Testament, uh, the Jewish leaders are trying to trap Jesus. They're always trying to set him up and take him out. And so they ask him in Matthew 19, you can read this later for yourself, hey, Jesus, Moses said we could divorce our wives for any and every reason. What do you think? And Jesus responds in Matthew 19, verse 8, that Moses gave you this certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, meaning there's opportunity to work on the restoration of marriage. That was always the hope of Jesus, that marriage would at least be exhausted and explored to restore a marriage. So you can see that when Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, the Jews just treat him as yet another teacher in a long tradition, in a long history of teachers. Salvation, therefore, for the Jews is about keeping these laws, following the rabbinical teachings, and then waiting for their Savior to come. Today, there's an estimated 13 million Jews. About half of them live here in the United States, uh, the other half scattered around the world, but a large portion of them obviously in Israel and in the conflict that we have against Palestine and Hamas to this day. But the data would show that the Jewish faith is, is really in trouble. Uh, in fact, it's a tradition that's passed down from family to family through the synagogue life, and that is not going so well in Judaism here, especially in America. In fact, um, data would show that Jewish faith, as passed down through the family, uh, requires that Jews marry Jews, and they have not been. In fact, if you look back to 1970, there were only about 13% of interfaith marriages. By 2001, that number had increased to 47%. And the children that grow up in those homes are just not raised in the tradition of passing on the Jewish faith. So George Barna, who's done the research on this, has this very interesting uh, takeaway. He says that if faith is meant to provide a transformational experience for its followers, American Judaism has a way to go before it satisfies that objective. Today, only one out of four Jews in the U.S. say that his or her faith has been life-transforming. And I would say that's true with the conversations I've had uh, with people of Jewish backgrounds. For most of them, it has nothing to do with a personal faith in God. It has everything to do with custom and traditions and synagogue life for them and their family that's sort of passed down from generation to generation. So I come back to the question we started with. Well, how do I engage in conversation? And, and how do I know, Pastor, that this God that you're talking about and this Jesus that I'm putting my faith in, how do I know that this is real and how do I how do I have these conversations with others? Well, I would say that one of the things we have is the way in which God 
has revealed himself to us. And uh, my hope in this series is to kind of raise our theology level a little bit. So I want to introduce you to two concepts because this is what sets us apart as Christians. When we look at the question, is God real? We can actually trust that God is real because God has revealed himself to us in two ways, a general way and in a special way. Now, general revelation is really what everyone should see. In fact, Romans 1 says that when you, when you look at creation, when you look at nature, uh, it says that no man is without excuse. And I believe that's true. You look out at the world and you see how, how beautifully designed the created order is. I mean, you, you look at this and you wonder like, wow, every day, sunrise, sunset, and, and it's this movement from chaos to order. Um, we kind of call this the fine-tuning argument, meaning if there's an amazing watch, if you're a watch person, uh, no matter how amazing that watch is, there has to be a more amazing, creative creator that made that, designed that watch. And we have that. That's how God has revealed himself generally. He's revealed himself through nature, through humanity. You look at life. You look at how, how your body works. You look at how physiology works. You look at the miracle of a baby, the sanctity of life of a child coming into the world. And, and again, you are without excuse. You cannot deny the involvement of God. But as Christians, we have also special revelation. And that special revelation is that God reveals himself as a trinity through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into every person's heart to give every person an opportunity to know and to follow God. And this is where I feel like in conversation, we really need to move beyond just having debates or having kind of like theological arguments with people of other faith backgrounds. Because especially with someone of a Jewish tradition, it's going to be an adventure in missing the point. They're, they're not going to engage in the theology. But you can engage them in this reality that Jesus is real to you. I mean, the question, is God real, is really the testimony of your life. Is God real to you? And I think this moves beyond just transactional. You know, I've got information about God, and, well, you've got information about, about your historical Judaism. And we begin to move and actually live out our faith in the lives of the people that God places around us. One of the things we have in the special revelation is we can talk to God as our Father and our Son and the Holy Spirit at any time. And so this kind of leads to the, the way I want to end this message is really an understanding of, of how do we pray? How, how do we talk to this God that has revealed himself, that is accessible at all times to us. And I would just say that as a Christian, this is one of those things that, that we need to make sure we don't let slip, that we always have kind of our attention on prayer. Prayer can be kind of a confusing topic. I get asked all the time, well, what is prayer? I just simply say, well, prayer is a conversation. You can talk to God about anything at any time. And I believe we need more of that in the life of our church. In fact, we need prayer not just as a ministry in the church, we need prayer as a lifeline that everybody experiences in our community. Um, in fact, I would just simply say, in our church right now, we could use a lot of prayer. You heard me mention what Christine is going through and just praying for her family. I'd encourage all of you to do that. Uh, we've got a lot going on. We've got, obviously, to backfill that position and keep caring for those kids and J-seekers. Uh, we've got, oh, this little thing called a building project coming up, kind of, a, kind of a thing that could use some prayer. Even right now, we've got the need for prayer. Um, we have a, a portion of our church 
that are down in Guatemala serving with our Bridge of Hope team. And I got to talk to uh, one of the leaders that's on this trip, Jose Rubio, dear, dear friend of mine, and just uh, talking to him and just kind of taking in the prayer requests. They've had kind of a rough start to this trip, um, and they're just getting started, and they could use your prayers. They've got about 15 on this trip. Um, They are traveling today. Today is kind of the day where they move from Guatemala City up into the mountains, and uh, over the next couple of days, they'll start building homes. The goal is to build 10 homes for widows, Um, These are rough sawn wood homes. If you've never gone on a trip with Bridge of Hope, I would highly encourage you to do it. It is life transforming to build this home for a widow who's been praying for someone to come and to take care of this basic need. And every time I've built a home, I've had this, this image in my mind that you know, if you've got a shed in your backyard, your lawnmower is living better than these widows in the mountains. I mean, it's just an amazing opportunity. And we're there now. You can be praying over that team. They're in the village, heading to the village of Mitador. It kind of sounds like Matador, but think of what you're going to have for lunch today, some meat, and be praying for our team that's in Mitador. We've been doing this for the last 20 years, and to me, it just, uh, it's just so special that God's given us an opportunity um, to partner in this way with his work around the world. So let me give you three ways to kind of end this message, three ways to pray. And I'm not really one on gimmicks or prayer acronyms, but this sort of um, is how I think of my prayer life. And it starts like this. It starts with going vertical. We pray to the Father. When the disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? The Lord's Prayer, very first line, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can pray to the Father, and you can pray to the Father anytime. Call him your pops. Call him your dad. You have a heavenly father that is available. Whether you're up early in the morning or you stay up late at night, you can pray to him when you're in the shower. You can pray with your eyes open. You can pray with your eyes closed. You can pray when you're driving down the road. I would suggest you keep your eyes open when you're praying as you're driving. But you can pray to this father any time that you need to. Pray to the father, but then pray through the son. And this is the reality that we have this intercessor. We have Jesus who sits at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. I'll get asked sometimes, uh, how did Bridgeway get their name? Well, we get it from this reality. It's 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. We have the man, Jesus, that we can pray to. And he's this mediator. The word mediator can be translated as bridge. There is a gap between you and God. And what covers, what spans that gap is the man, Christ Jesus. Pray to the Father, pray through the Son, and finally, pray by the Holy Spirit. And I really, I really want you to sense that the Spirit is your power. Pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit. You have access to this power at any time, kind of this unseen reality of God moving in your life. I wanted to give us just some time this morning uh, to make this your prayer as well, to be thinking about in these moments, whatever it is you need, whatever you need to bring before God, that you can pray to your Father through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Eli and the team are going to come and to join us on stage here. And I would just invite you just simply to close your eyes and to bow your head. And with your eyes closed and with your head bowed, I want you just to maybe just rest in this moment. And maybe to take in this moment just an opportunity to imagine that heavenly father that is there for you. Just to imagine the heavenly father with his arms open and the invitation to come to him, to climb into his lap 
and to give him your problems and your concerns. And then I want you to imagine and to envision that Jesus is right there with him. The Jesus who suffered, who was beaten, the Jesus who got into conflicts and had to say no to people and had to battle against temptation. You get to pray through this son that lived and died for you. And then finally, to imagine this power, this unseen power of the Holy Spirit that is moving and directing and fueling every moment of your existence. And this power is available to you as you worship and as you lift him up. Father God, we just want to thank you in this moment for the opportunity to seek you and ultimately to find you. You are not far from any one of us. I just thank you, God, that you created us and you know us and you call us even closer in these moments and every moment that takes place. God, I pray that we would know you and we would leave with you our burdens and our struggles, but that we would also give you our praise and our worship as we begin to do that now. We love you and we thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 